Welcome back to the Backyard Professor videos on Mormonism, spirituality, science, whatever else interests us. Sometimes, instead of critiquing something else that doesn't quite fit into our spiritual narrative, or that just doesn't jive with our spirituality or our soul, sometimes instead of arguing against something, it's good to do something I call taking medicine for my soul. And my medicine for my soul is the author Alan Watts. He inevitably and always unfailingly has a certain type of way to change a perspective and point of view, and I love that about him. So I'm going to read to you some selections from his book, Just So. And during the course of me reading these selections, I've gone out and videoed some of the beautiful horizons, the mountains, the clouds, the world, this beautiful world we live in that we take too much for granted and we don't actually look and see because we're always in such a hurry to get from point A to point B. So I'm going to intersperse some video of Mother Nature, of our Earth, while I'm trying to give us some medicine of the soul. And I think you'll appreciate these. Some of the ways in which God is addressed in the Bible, for example, the King of King or the Lord of Lords, these are actually borrowed from the names that were employed for Persian emperors. Furthermore, certain rites that have become associated with Christianity are, in fact, reflections of the greater autocratic monarchs of ancient times, the Cyruses of Persia, the pharaohs of Egypt, the Babylonian kings like Hammurabi. In this way, people began to conceive of the universe as being ruled in the same political pattern. There's one of our keys right there, right? Hammurabi in particular, and Moses after him, these were supposed to be wise patriarchs, and what they did is they laid down the rules for conduct by divine decree. They were the ones who said, now this is the way it's going to be. Since you can't agree among yourselves, I'm here to tell you what everybody is supposed to do and how to behave. And since I'm the toughest guy around here, and I've got all these brothers who are pretty tough themselves, we're going to say that this is the new law of the land, and now everybody has to obey. And they did. Yeah. So this is how we historically arrive at this idea that there are laws to nature, as if someone powerful told nature what to do. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw the light, and it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. It was a command, a command to nature from God himself. The quest for the laws of nature is akin to the quest for the true understanding of the word of God, who created the universe simply by the breath of his mouth. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But what is the Word? Yeah, 
If we knew the Word of God, we would perform incredible magic. If you actually know the name of God, you have unbelievable power, the power of God. That is why all the ancient forms of magic are based on knowing the names of God. This might sound like a silly idea, truly, but it's exactly how it's been with science. Western science is essentially the knowledge of names, and that itself is a kind of a magic. Understanding the laws of nature means understanding the words underneath the phenomena of nature. And that means you can change those phenomena, and that is magic. The exception here is that scientists have actually become rather sophisticated of late having realized that the word comes after the event itself. In other words, in the beginning wasn't the word, unless you consider the Hindu idea that speech is the basis of creation. But by speech they mean vibration, sound, you see? They say that if you really get into what sound is all about, then you'll understand the whole mystery of things because the whole mystery of things is essentially vibrating energy. On and off. And it's as simple as that, really. Life is on, death is off. You have to have one in order to have the other. In this way, they say that the roots you find in Sanskrit are not simply the building blocks of the language, they are the very roots of life. In this way, you create the world by the word. You might not be very conscious of doing so, but it is the way that you think that determines your basic relations to everything that you encounter and perceive. As Hamlet says to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, For there is nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Thinking makes it so. And thinking is talking to yourself. Inside your head. That's how we build up all sorts of weird notions, isn't it? For example, when we say things like, Well, one day I'll have to die... Why have to die? What do we mean by that? What do we mean by such a thing like that? What's the emotional content involved with saying that? Someday I will have to die. See, in this case it means that death is going to be imposed on me against my will. This particular sentence, I'll have to die, is stated passively as if one day I will be compelled to do so. We could look at dying another way, though. We could instead say something like, well, one day I'll get a disease and die as a result of it. Now, that's active. Uh, I'm taking part. Getting a disease in this case is something I do just as much as taking a walk. But we somehow get this weird notion the death is not supposed to happen. Uh, we have our thoughts arranged so that we believe that a disease is something that we're not supposed to get. 
even plain old age is something we ought not to do. You're supposed to just go on. Well, we've got this hang-up about life being divided into two parts. There are the things that we do, and then there are the things that happen to us. And for this reason, Westerners have a habit of misunderstanding karma, and they talk about karma as if all the awful things that happen to the person are the punishment for bad behavior enacted in some previous life, and that's nonsense. Karma simply means your doing, or your action. It's not some type of punishment passively received from an external source. If you were to understand karma and recognize that whatever happens to you is actually your own doing, then it's never bad karma. It's only truly bad karma if you refuse to admit it. So what does this have to do with our Western notion of the laws of nature? Well, consider that we have been told that God's commandments is the foundation for everything that happens in the world today. At the same time, the contemporary science promotes an entirely new idea about the laws of nature, see, which asserts that these so-called laws are not things that exist in any real sense. Uh, you can clearly see that the universe is doing all of this stuff, but what we've been called laws depends entirely on these human brains of ours that are oriented to make sense of it all. One of the ways we make sense of it all is by the principle of regularity. Absolutely. Something quite important to us. Take a clock, for instance. A clock ticks regularly, the world does not. And, inconveniently enough, the Earth does not go around the sun neatly in precisely 360 days, a fact that irritated calendar makers throughout the ages. How do you make a rational calendar? You can't. There isn't an obvious solution because the rotation of the Earth upon its own axis does not neatly synchronize with its rotation around the Sun, so there's always something a little odd and wobbly about it. Yeah. But that doesn't stop us from superimposing the ideal figure of a circle with exactly 360 degrees over a rather odd elliptical path now, does it? No, it does not. Doing this is the same thing as placing a ruler upon a piece of wood and saying, this piece of wood can be cut in 12 inches. Now, inches are simply not something that exists in the wood. Inches are simply a method. It's our technique that we've invented for measuring things. So we can cut a piece of a cloth or a piece of wood or a trunk of a tree in so many feet, right? Originally, we compared that tree trunk with our own bodies. This trunk is so many of our feet long or so many spans if we use our hand span between the little finger and the thumb. And the inch is, of course, roughly the length of one of our finger joints. Our bodies themselves 
typically have a regular shape to them. Five fingers on each hand, ten toes all together, and by stretching ourselves out and applying that measure of our bodies regularly to nature, we believe we could measure nature. This is precisely the type of measurement we find when it comes to our laws of nature. A law of nature is exactly the same kind of thing as a ruler. It's a way of thinking. And what this does is it enables us to control our environment by observing what we perceive as regularities, applying a calculus, and betting that the environment will be just as regular next time. And the odds are that it very well may be. If the environment does something once in a particular way, it's likely to do it again in a similar fashion for sure. And that's how people were first able to predict such things as solar eclipses, the phases of the moon, the rising of certain stars at certain times, etc. They measured them. What they did is they counting how often such and such a thing did this, and how often such and such a thing did that. What happens if we can make these kinds of predictions to other people who haven't figured it out yet? It's pure magic. It can even appear as if nature itself is obeying your command. All you have to do is announce that the moon is going to change at a particular time, Say, so many days from now, it's going to take a crescent shape. And the people that think you're actually making it happen when they see it happen. See, in this way, some predictions establish people in privileged positions simply because they were able to foretell change. See, this is what I'm getting at when I say that the laws of nature are established by the human network. We project the lines of celestial latitude and longitude on the sky, but those lines don't actually exist in the heavens. They're simply a way for us to measure the positions of the stars. Yeah? They're, upon closer examination, scattered all over the place in a way that would otherwise be somewhat confusing. Just try to remember that mess up there and figure it out if you don't believe me. Some very clever people decided to overlay a spherical network on the sky in accordance with the principle of a circle, 360 degrees, right? That makes a nice regular network of squares that you can then number. But the network itself has never really been there see, and neither have the shapes. This collection of big stars looks like a dipper, that array over there looks like a belt, and one way over there somewhat like a cross, and there's one way over there to the left that some extreme wrangling made it look like a virgin. All these imaginary lines that seem to join the constellations together are our way of projecting a pattern upon this great and glorious confusion so that we can remember that pattern and even to chart it. But it's obvious that if you looked at these collections of stars from some completely different position in the galaxy, all of those constellations and the arrangements, those would simply evaporate. They would vanish. You'd have to invent new ones because there is nowhere static where the stars actually are. It all depends on where you're looking from. This is how we 
figure out nature with our extraordinarily symmetrical brains. It is we who introduce the law into the world. We invent it. The word invent in Latin means to discover. But we don't discover something that's out there. When we invent the laws of nature, what we are discovering is something about ourselves. Namely, our own passion for regularity, for prediction, and for keeping things under control. Most of us know that context is terribly important. It isn't just when a thing happens that's important, it's where it happens. That is, in what setting. The blood in my veins is in a certain setting, of course, but in a test tube it's in a completely different setting. See? My blood does not behave in a test tube the same way it behaves while it's in my body. It isn't the same thing. Similarly, we behave one way in a particular social setting and quite differently in another. When I was a young child, when I was a boy, when I was at home with my parents, a different boy was when I was with my aunt and uncle, and quite a different boy entirely when I was with my peers. I changed according to the setting I found myself in, as do most children and adults. Yeah. In spite of this, we're told that we're supposed to be one consistent person, even though we're not. <laughs> As we grow up, it's drummed into our heads that we should have a consistent character. Yeah. Just as a character in a novel is supposed to remain consistent throughout the narrative in order to come across as believable. Yeah, right? Well, who behaves the same way all the time, though? Doing so across various circumstances and in the company of various people doesn't mean you're consistent. It means you've become rigid and inflexible. Everything depends on the context in which it is found. Anything we single out depends on its network relationships to everything else that's going on. In fact, the whole notion of a thing or an isolated event in nature, say, as well as the notion of causal relationships between different things and events. It's a purely abstract idea that does not fit into the facts of nature at all. In nature, there are no separate events. Nothing happens in isolation. Not touching your head, not holding someone else's hand, not looking at the stars, not breathing, nothing. Nothing happens in isolation. Of course, we can see all sorts of wiggles happening around you, all sorts of colors and all sorts of shapes and forms, but none of them are actually separate things. We speak of inside and outside as distinct, but we can't truly separate them. Try doing that with your skin. It takes the outside and the inside working together to create this whole skin situation in the first place. No outside, no inside. It's the same way with breathing. The physical situation of my body inhaling and exhaling is impossible without the external situation of there being air to breathe. 
you can't see error, but it's always around, so you don't pay much attention to it, unless it changes rapidly, as in the case of a tornado or a hurricane. And you can point out that change to someone else. That sudden wiggling going on out there, and you say, hey, look at that, and you point at it. And they'll know what you mean by that, because a that is something at the end of a finger point. That's different and peculiar from other things. From the process comes the idea of an isolated event, or a thing. It's a that. But all of these that's that are happening aren't disconnected. They go with each other. My inside goes with the outside. My breathing goes with the air. And this whole situation of you reading or else listening to these words that I'm reading right now in this moment is a complicated going withness. What do we mean by going with? This is the fundamental idea. I'm speaking of here the idea of going with. From this idea we can start to construct and understand the whole notion of networks. That being said, it's possible for us to think of networks through the lenses of relativity and relationship. Let's say that you're sitting there being exactly the sort of person that you are. You know, maybe a little neurotic. Maybe a little happy, maybe a little sick physically, maybe a little ashamed of yourself for one reason or the other, whatever. You're simply sitting there being whoever you're being, just the way you are. Whatever that's like for you, whatever that your personal situation is, well, that experience goes with the entire situation of the rest of the universe. Back goes with front, inside goes with outside, and whatever you are goes with the way of the whole of the rest of boundless being is arranged. Now you might think that that's the way the boundless being is arranged that determines what you are, or conversely, you might believe that you are what determines the structure or pattern of the larger universe. Either you did it or it did you. I'll discuss that in more detail later. For now, I'll just say that the argument here of that dichotomy is ridiculous. It isn't a question of what controls what? And the reason why is simple, because it all goes together. You and the universe are one event. As Pierre Teilhard de Chardin famously writes in The Phenomenon of Man, the whole universe is the only true atom. In other words, the universe is the only truly indivisible whole. It's particularly hard for Westerners to grasp this idea, however. One reason it's difficult for us to understand that everything we are goes with the rest of the entire universe is that we're given conflicting messages about 
who we are. On one hand, we're supposed to be one consistent person. On the other hand, we're supposed to improve and change. For one reason or the other, we're supposed to be different or better than we actually are. We repeat this message to one another. We get the same idea from television and radio. We're bombarded with all sorts of advertisements saying the same blasted thing. But it doesn't matter in the end. What matters is that you realize that you're supposed to change. That's what we're told. Now, I've been given all kinds of opinions about what I'm supposed to do with my life. See, for example, what I need to do in order to get myself into shape. You've heard the spiel, right? Now, let's see, a half hour of yoga practice, uh, an hour of zazen, exercises to help my fading memory, a special diet to make sure that I get proper nutrition, and so on. Well, if I followed all the advice that I've received, I'd spend my entire day doing things in the name of getting prepared for life. And when I think it through, I think, my God, the whole damn project just isn't worth it. See, we receive subtle versions of these messages, of course. Some experts will tell you to pick just one thing. One thing. You're getting confused, they say. Well, narrow it down and focus on one thing. And if you're not sure which one thing to choose, they'll be sure to inform you about which one they think is best and right for you. And this is precisely how people get drawn in and sewn up by religious fanatics. They get shown the proper way. <laughs> Whatever that's supposed to be. It shouldn't be about me anyway. It's all about you. And you are like a dewdrop, suspended on a multidimensional spider's web in the light of early morning. If you look at that dewdrop closely, you'll see that it reflects every other dewdrop that there is. And the way that one dewdrop looks goes with the way that all of the others appear also, you see. They each have their particular glimmer, depending on their peculiar position in the cosmos, of course, and the reflection of the whole web in each drop of dew is slightly different, yes indeed. Nevertheless, the whole network, that is, all of the dewdrops together on this web, depends on each individual dewdrop. Just as each individual dewdrop depends on all of the others. So that's the situation we're living in here. That mutuality can affront our logic at first when you run into this, certainly. Because although we might understand how we depend on the universe, after all, we need sunlight and air and water and parents and all of that kind of thing. It's a lot different to see how the universe depends on us isn't it? Yeah, it really is. We have failed to learn that the relationship of the network is entirely mutual. 
it runs both ways. It depends on you just as much as you depend on it. It's your brain that turns vibration of air into sound. It's you that turns whatever the sun does into light. It's you that makes the air's activity in the sky into the color called blue. Blue doesn't exist on its own. There's only blue in your brain. If you hit a drum and the drum doesn't have any skin, it won't make any sound. It's the skin that evokes the noise out of a moving hand or a drumstick. No skin, no noise. Just as the dewdrop reflects everything else on the web, you reflect everything else that goes on in the universe. By the constitution of what kind of a reflector you are, you evoke what we call the sun, the moon, the stars, even the nebula. Even space itself is only vast in relation to you. Vastness means nothing on its own. It requires your participation and perception. From other perspectives, the space between stars could be minuscule. Or the space between two hairs on your arm could be incredibly vast. Again, the core principle I want to get across here is the idea of going with. The universe around you is your outside just as much as the organs inside your skin are your inside. You go with the universe in the same way that the stock goes with the root, or the pistol with the stamen, or the north pole with the south. The principle of relationship governs everything. Actually, I shouldn't say governs. Yeah, sometimes we have to use wretched terms just to approximate what we mean. Perhaps underlies is a better way to put this. Relationship underlies everything. Yeah, that's better. Now, I want to repeat that the larger universe doesn't control or determine the smaller individual any more than the smaller individual actuates the larger universe. It's not a question of control. It's a question of dancing. It's a question of what happens rather than what makes it happen. Things aren't made to happen. You can only think that way if you insist that a certain event is quite separate. And then you can argue that the sequence of events that came before it made it happen in such and such a way. But in doing so, you'll have to ignore the importance of context. If you realize that everything is part of one event, that everything is a different aspect or a phase of the same event,
then you understand that it is simply happening. You don't see anything make it happen. As the Taoists say, everything is interrelated, and therefore we can observe patterns in the activity of the whole. There is an order to it, the order of the net. Everything mutually interpenetrates everything else, and even Christianity has a symbol of the Holy Trinity, the three interlocking rings. Take one of those rings away, and the symbol loses its meaning. A given planet or star seems to move and operate on its own, but its behavior only makes sense when you examine the larger situation of interdependence. So that's the basic idea on which the whole universe is constructed. Motion depends on comparison with something that remains relatively still. There can't be any motion without comparison. In this way, every single individual implies everything else that's going on in the universe. With lasers, you can photograph a tiny fragment of any photographic negative, and from that tiny fragment, reconstruct the larger picture from which it was taken. Because the crystalline tensions in that particular individual fragment imply the whole context of crystalline tensions that belong to that particular negative. In exactly the same way, you as an individual imply the world. And the world mutually implies you. You are a natural formation. You are not determined by the universe. You move in and you move with it as harmoniously as waves upon the ocean, as leaves upon a tree, as clouds up in the sky. We don't accuse the clouds of making ascetic mistakes. Seen in the same light, all human beings are perfect forms of nature. You may have fashionable discriminations about who is beautiful, who is ugly. You may have metaphysical discriminations about who is sick and who is healthy. And you may have moral discriminations about who is good and who is evil. But these are all points of view. Relative points of view. Anything that is part of the functioning of the whole is legitimate. Therefore, even your relative points of view are legitimate, as they too are a part of nature. So the key here is to live on multiple levels at once. If you can do that, you'll find that there are no mistakes. Everything moves in accordance with the Tao, the way of nature. And if you close, if you're close to that basic feeling, you'll always be sane. If you only take the discriminatory point of view that is that there's a fundamental difference between good and evil, then you're going to come away with the Christian hang-up. 
and that basic difference leads to the construction of an eternal heaven and an eternal hell, and the distinction between the two couldn't be more radical, and the result of that belief, incidentally also, is a disease called chronic guilt, which is one of the most destructive emotions that anybody can have, at odds with reality and God himself. This makes people quite mad, yeah, and is responsible for a good deal of the craziness of Western civilization, without question. Now understand that that's not to say that there isn't an important distinction between good and evil, however. It's just that the distinction isn't fundamentally important in the bigger picture. You have to learn to admit varying degrees of importance. And you can't just say that because a certain distinction isn't absolute, that it isn't important. After all, your own physical formation is not absolute, but it's clearly important. You have a psychophysical organism. At the same time, you are something that the whole cosmos is doing. Your soul is something that contains the body. Now get this. Your soul is something that contains the body. Your body doesn't have a soul inside. It's like some kind of spook. The whole cosmos is your soul. The cosmos is doing you at the point you call here and now. Reciprocally, you are doing the universe. One depends upon the other. As Westerners, we have particular difficulty holding these differing ideas simultaneously because we have been brainwashed by several centuries of two contrasting put-down theories of our nature. On the one hand, we've been informed that we are wretched, disobedient little subjects of an eternal king. On the other, we're told that we're simply a fortuitous congress of atoms in a mindless mechanism of incredible vastness. Having entertained those two theories for so long, we are unable to see that we and the universe are mutually causative, or, to use the Chinese expression, mutually arising. So there's a significant hurdle here for the average Westerner whose common sense and view of the universe is derived from the philosophical and scientific thought prominent in the 19th century. On the one hand, the organization of the universe was said to be intelligent, reflecting the dominant theism that presented God anthropomorphically as an old gentleman in the sky with whiskers. On the other hand, we were informed that God was dead beyond recall. So what does this mean 
in terms of an intelligent universe? Well, let's begin with the word intelligence, which is difficult enough to describe. It's like the word love. It seems like we all know what it means, of course, but just go ahead and try to define it. Yeah, it's the same thing with the terms time and space. Now, there are certain elements of intelligence that most of us would agree to. We would probably include complexity as an element and the understanding with the understanding that complexity is an orderly arrangement of different clusters of intricacy. But that gets us into another bind. What do we mean by orderly? Are we indicating that with particular word that everything is in order as if intelligently arranged? Well, we use a lot of words that are imprecise, right? We recognize them when they appear, uh, but we're not quite sure what they mean, and we just let it go with that, right? Well, what if we began with the pure hypothesis that we ourselves are intelligent? Let's start there. We are intelligent. And we may as well make that assumption, because if we're not intelligent, then nothing is. So, continuing on, for the sake of the argument, we'll say that we human beings are actually intelligent. Now, if that is the case, then it follows that the environment in which we must live also must be intelligent because we are symptoms of that environment. One goes with the other. You would have a most difficult time convincing me that intelligent symptoms are possible in an unintelligent organization. We belong to this world. We didn't arrive here from somewhere else. We're not tourists in this universe. We are expressions of it. Just as branches or fruit are expressions of trees. You won't find intelligent organisms living in unintelligent environments anywhere. The environment in which we live is a system of mutual cooperation among varying organisms, a vast complexity of different kinds of organisms, and the total balance of all that makes your life possible. Westerners have trouble seeing this because we are primarily invested in using an analytical method of perception that spotlights particular features of the world. Furthermore, we only give names and symbols to the features of the world that we consider significant. And there are many features in the world that we completely ignore. We don't even notice them. But they are part of our environment nonetheless. Naming those things that we consider important means isolating those things as separate entities. But they're only separate in a purely theoretical way and just because we say so. Right? It is immensely important that we become aware of this fact because when we aren't aware of it, we do the most stupid 
things. We try to solve problems by attacking the symptoms of those problems. The universe is just as much ourselves as our own bodies are. We have an inside body and an outside body, and the two are inseparable. There's no wall to where our outside body stops, is there? This is why the Taoists teach Wu Wei. It means something like non-interference, especially when it comes to nature and politics. It's almost like our concept of laissez-faire. Not quite really, though, because the Taoists understand that acting upon nature is unavoidable. True. You can't actually isolate yourself from the world. It can't be done. You interfere with something with every breath you take. So the art of Wu Wei is that when you do interfere, you endeavor to do so by going with the grain. If you want to split wood, split it with the grain. If someone attacks you, use judo. The other person's violence will bring about their downfall. Similarly, sailing is very Wu Wei, but rowing is not. Unlike what transpired in the West, the Taoists viewed the cosmos as a vast universal organism without a boss. In Chinese philosophy, there isn't anyone out there making the world happen or ordering it to do so. There's no central principle in the middle and nothing that sends out commands to all of its other subordinate parts. Instead, the thing intelligently organizes itself. For Taoists, the universe, the whole universe, is a self-so, self-regulating organism. And the individual is not merely a part of that larger organism, but an expression of the whole thing. So we make the mistake of viewing the universe as a contraption of sorts, and we think of ourselves as something that just happened to arrive on it by accident. It's funny that we can put ourselves down by saying we're just an accident, a kind of a, a chemical accident that has occurred on an unimportant rock that orbits a lesser star on the fringe of a minor galaxy, and that's supposed to be us, floating around in a universe that doesn't give a damn about us. At the same time, this wretched little chemical accident is capable of reflecting an image of the whole vast cosmos inside its tiny head and is aware that it is doing so. So we are small in dimension, but vast in comprehension. Which one of those aspects is more important?